Good evening, everyone. I'm Allison Camerata. Welcome to CNN Tonight. In a sudden and stunning move, Tucker Carlson ousted from Fox. Was it the on-air election lies and conspiracy theories? Or was it the behind-the-scenes behavior that's just now coming to light because of a lawsuit by one of his own producers? We'll get into all of that. Plus, what a Georgia DA says about the timing of possible indictments in the investigation of Donald Trump's efforts to overturn that state's election results in 2020. And Michelle Obama has a thing or two to say about her return to the White House. I noticed that you went back, you went back to the White House recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you haven't been back. No. Uh, since... I uh, wasn't invited. The, uh... <laughs> Ooh, she. <laughs> Wow. All right, but we start with the former top booker for Tucker Carlson's show, who apparently has a heck of a story to tell. She's filed a lawsuit against Fox and revealed lots of unsavory details about how his show was run. It all sounds like one toxic, misogynistic boys club. People regularly using the C word around the office. Many posters of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in a plunging swimsuit adorning the walls. One of Tucker's producers reportedly liked to ask questions about Maria Bartiromo's sex life. This is all in addition to the mega Dominion defamation lawsuit that just cost Fox $787 million. Tucker also apparently did not think his own bosses were very smart. He sent this text to one of his producers right after the network called Arizona for Biden. Quote, a combination of incompetent liberals and top leadership with too much pride to back down is what's happening. We have so much to discuss with our panel. We have Josh Barrow, the very serious host of the Very Serious Podcast, former Congressman Mondaire Jones, and two people who, like me, have years of experience inside Fox, whether they want to admit it or not, the wonderful Margaret Hoover and delightful Frank Luntz. Guys, great to have all of you here. Frank. I'm delightful. You are delightful. Can I put that in my resume? Yes, that can go on your business card. Your thoughts when you heard the news about Tucker? I know from the research that I've done for almost every TV network that nothing matters more than integrity and the truth. And it was impossible for Tucker Carlson to explain how he says publicly how great Donald Trump is. And then in private, he's condemning him, slamming him, text after text after text. But do you think the viewers knew that? They weren't exactly covering the Dominion lawsuit. So do you think the viewers knew that, really? That's, that's why you think he was fired? I, I don't know, and I owe him. I really do. He changed my life. How? By coming after me so incredibly harshly, night after night, 10 minutes, 15 minutes at a time, attempting to wreck my professional life. It got so bad that I left the country. And in that, I discovered how great London is to live. <laughs> I discovered how awesome it is to teach across the globe. I discovered that politics didn't matter that much to me. And I discovered that his ratings didn't matter. So I'm actually grateful to him. And I feel sorry for him because I believe he's been fired by every single news network, which is a record that you cannot well, ever Well, this is beat. really a silver lining that you have here. And that's really nice, Frank. I mean, it's nice that you have been able to see it in that light, that everything's a teachable moment. That's great. But, Margaret, I think that hearing what may be in Abby Grossberg's lawsuit, maybe 
that's what is behind this more than even the Dominion lawsuit? Hard to know because we don't know everything that's in there, but just that little bit that I read. We, we don't know everything, but what we do know is that if this were about his text in the Dominion lawsuit, if this were about the shaming of Fox News as not being a legitimate news organization because he was promulgating lies, then Maria Martiromo and Janine Pirro would be behind him on the way out. And I don't know, I haven't checked Twitter in the last five minutes, but last, last I did check, they still are happily employed there. So it doesn't, doesn't seem as though it is about the integrity of the news network and telling the truth to your viewers. Uh, as in all complex corporate firings, there are many issues at play, and we have yet to learn. Congressman? <laughs> What is it? I mean, what, you know, look, we've talked about uh, the things that were said, um, the falsehoods that were spread on Fox many nights. <laughs> You're smiling. Including, I, including about me. I've been, is that right? I, I've had the privilege <laughs> oh, of being I bet they told the truth about you a, Attacked? All oh, no, not at all. Uh, Do you no, feel as good about it as Frank does? Uh, uh, <laughs> Join me in Europe. It's really cool there. <laughs> I, I, I love Europe. Look, leave it to Fox to, to finally reach the right outcome on something, but, but not for... For the wrong reasons. <laughs> the right reasons, right? It seems like the reason... Tucker Carlson was let go is because people like Rupert Murdoch were upset that that he criticized him and that that came out in in discovery in the Dominion lawsuit. Again, shout out once again to Dominion. Um, I think that Tucker Carlson is objectively one of, if not the most pernicious forces on television, or I would say today, but as of as of Friday of last week. You know, the New York Times obviously famous, famously did a profile of him and they called it White Supremacy Power Hour. I, I don't think anyone, any single individual, with the exception of, of, of the Murdoch family perhaps, um, has had more of an influence on, uh, in, 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 in terms of enraging people um, who, who feel as though they are being replaced in the, in the case of one of the, the themes on his show, white replacement theory. Uh, and of course, through repeating the lie that the election was stolen, he contributed to what happened on January 6th. And it's just such a shame that Fox is not going to have to apologize for telling that significant lie. Josh, how do you see it? Well, I mean, I think, you know, there was a lot of talk last week, um, people oddly disappointed about this settlement payment, sort of viewing it as a capitulation. They wanted, they, they, I think people had this vision that if this had gone to trial, that for, if Fox lost, they would have been forced to apologize and everyone would have had to admit that they were lying about this. And that's that's not how it works. Even if you win a multi-billion dollar judgment, you, you don't get to force the defendant to apologize. Well, it happened with Gretchen Carlson. The reason that some people thought that was going to happen was because Gretchen Carlson had a 20, reported $20 million settlement with Fox and they had to apologize to her publicly. Well, you can negotiate that, for anything in a settlement, but so, the thing, the thing about the settlement is that you know the, the the apology and Dominion CEO wrote about this. Like, is is the is the apology worth anything? Like, a, you know, a half-hearted, qualified apology that people know is being made pursuant to a legal proceeding. Does that help them actually restore their reputation at all? And it's and it ends up being costly to Fox, including because they're being sued by various other parties. If they admit wrongdoing in this case, then you know they have to go defend themselves against Smartmatic. And so I think you know there, there are reasons we didn't see the apology there. But some people had this idea that like this was like a parking parking ticket for Fox. It was a cost of doing business. This first of all, is like half of Fox's profits from, from, the, from 2022, so it's a really large amount of money. Um, but also we're seeing here the sort of the, the domino effects from this, that this set off all of this internal dissension. I think it's very unlikely that Tucker would be being fired this week if it were not for the lawsuit, even if he's not being fired over matters in the lawsuit. It opened up this, this rift, caused the disclosure of these communications. By the way, a lot of the discovery in this lawsuit was under a protective order. There were those redactions that we all saw, things we didn't get to see. They lifted some of the redactions, but not all of them. So there are other 
other things that Tucker may have said about Fox management or about other matters that aren't known to us but are known to Fox management. They saw that in Discovery. So I think, you know, I, I, I suspect that this really is about his relationship to management. This harassment lawsuit brought by this employee, frankly, that is the sort of thing that feels like a cost of doing business. If you're going to pay out a nine-figure settlement to Dominion, you could pay seven figures and settle that lawsuit. Well, hold on. Go ahead. Well, I, I was just going to say... <laughs> The thing I didn't comment on and none of us have commented on is the thing you led with, which is that, you know, there is this sexism allegation, this bravado, this mm. misconduct allegation amongst all the men and the boys club that exists at Fox News. I didn't even comment on that because having formerly worked there, and I know you formerly worked there, it just goes without saying. Yeah. This is how Fox works. They are a sexist, bravo- I mean, there is not a space for the sort of the decency and respect of regular normal women unless you have your legs out and your high heels and your all the other things. I, I do, don't even want to go into it, but that's just how the place works. And so it feels eminently believable that this, on top of all the things you're talking about, Josh, is part of the mix. But in the end, it's not what happens internally. Because while this is all important and our relations and how we treat each other is essential, we call ourselves a news network. And in the end, can the people who are watching it trust and believe what they're being told? And this, you, you shouldn't roll your eyes because this really matters. You, we talk about the dangers of democracy. I'm teaching now at West Point. I was just, I came here to be on this show. And these students are going to defend this democracy, going to defend this constitution, are going to put their lives on the line. And they have the right to the truth. And you have the responsibility to tell them the truth. And if you're not doing that, you should not be on a news network. And that's the problem with Tucker. Well, and that's what he has to look yes, people and, straight and, in the eye. Because if you are so duplicitous yes. and dishonest to say one thing and then tell your colleagues exactly yes, the opposite. We all agree. We all agree. But here's, I'll just tell you this, Frank, because I did a, a panel, a viewer panel with Fox viewers last week. And they all, uh, Tucker was appointment viewing for them. Appointment viewing. He was the reason that they watch Fox. And we checked back in with them today, and they basically said that they blame the network. They, they do still believe Tucker. They believe Tucker. Which, His viewers often believe him. Then we have a problem. Which employs other yeah. serial liars, right? So if this were about just purging the, the people who are being dishonest on Fox News, we, we'd see a lot more firings today, I think, than just Tucker Carlson. So let's not give Fox too much credit. Josh? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. And I, I think the one thing to, you know, when we're talking about the internal politics there, this is a, it's a publicly traded corporation, but it's ultimately controlled by the Murdoch family. And so if you, if you piss off Rupert Murdoch, he can fire you, even if it's not a good decision from a shareholder point of view. I mean, I think that this, this shows what a rough position Fox has come out of in all of this, because if you say they told these lies because they were trying to win the trust of their audience, and by the way, I don't think the way you win the trust of the core Fox audience is by telling them the truth. I think Tucker Carlson and others correctly diagnosed that a lot of the audience was flipping out about true things that they were learning in, in November of 2020. There's something more important than ratings. No, I, I There's understand. something more important than elections. That's not what there, the Dominion deposition said. But you have, you, look, what? We, we are in I, I deep, we agree. deep trouble. Yeah. And unless we hold all of us, which means this network, MSNBC, CNBC, everyone, if you are proven to be dishonest, you have to be held accountable. Are you going to continue network. to go on Fox News then? Yes, because Brett Baer is honest. Neil Cavuto is honest. They have people there. 
uh, uh, Dana Perino is honest. Yeah, but if, you, if, you, if it was the Cavuto network, it would be out of business. I mean, I think we I think we saw this in this episode. The problem here is is the consumer. There is demand for this product, and someone will offer it to them. And what the people at Fox were terrified of is that if it's not them, that's going to be Newsmax. And who knows where Tucker Carlson's going to land? I don't think we should assume that he's gone away just because he's off Fox's air. I think he could become an important you know cornerstone for some other conservative network Possibly. that is willing to go to places that not everyone on Fox. There's is also to reporting go. that Brett Baer is is quite dishonest uh, because of the Dominion discovery that came out as well. So, again, this is much deeper I, than way, Tucker Carlson. I, I reject that, and I think we have, to, we have to do this on an individual basis on every news network so that those who have been shown to be wrong again and again should be held The problem is we saw in the deposition and all the discovery from the Dominion case is that the tone comes from the top. It wasn't individual, this host, that host. It was coming from Suzanne Scott, the CEO of the network. It was coming from Rupert Murdoch, the owner of the corporation. This is a endemic problem at that corporation and in that quote-unquote news network that is not about individual hosts. And if there are some individual hosts who hew to the truth more than others, good for them, but they're still part of this this rotten, cancerous media organization in this country, which is misinforming Americans on a daily basis, which I used to work at and has gotten significantly worse in the last six years. We collect our news to affirm us rather than inform us. Yes, yes. So we're partially responsible for this ourselves. We have to get away from Yeah, that. I don't watch Fox News, so I So you're I good. Yeah. You're good. Your, your <laughs> conscience is clean yeah, right now. All right. Um, there's also other big media news today that we need to tell you about. CNN's CEO, Chris Licht, announcing that, quote, CNN and Don Lemon have parted ways. Licht says in a letter to the network, quote, Don will forever be a part of the CNN family, and we thank him for his contributions over the past 17 years. We wish him well and we'll be cheering him on his future endeavors. Okay, when we come back, the 2024 election, from Donald Trump's legal entanglements to the investigation into Hunter Biden, what will these mean for the presidential election? Our panel tells us. New developments tonight in one of the big legal cases surrounding former President Trump. In Georgia, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis says she will announce this summer whether she'll bring charges against Trump or his allies for their attempts to overturn the 2020 Georgia presidential election results. According to a letter obtained by CNN, she plans to announce possible charges between July 11th and September 1st. Meanwhile, Jury selection is set to begin tomorrow in E. Jean Carroll's lawsuit against Donald Trump. She alleges that he raped her in a New York department store in the mid-1990s and then defamed her by denying the assault, saying she was not his type, and suggesting that she made the allegations for book sales. My panel is back with me. You know, um, Congressman, I don't, we don't talk enough about the E. Jean Carroll um, case. That's happening tomorrow. It's starting tomorrow. And that is obviously a very um, ugly case, the, the accusations. Um, and if she can prove them, they're obviously old. It will be a challenge. Um, but we've also learned that uh, Donald Trump doesn't have to be there in the courtroom. No, it's you don't have to be. You don't have to be. For anyone other than Donald Trump, it would be a really high profile fact in American news that a former president was being accused in a civil lawsuit of rape. Mm. Um, but 
when you have a guy who is so entangled with so many different lawsuits and I think more prominently uh, in existing indictments and impending in, in indictments like what is going to be happening in Fulton potentially, uh, it, it just gets it just gets lost in the conversation. Um, and, you know, the person who is, is leading this lawsuit, Robbie Kaplan, is, she's a tremendous lawyer. And, and this is a very serious case. Absolutely. And I think I think we'll continue to be appalled by what comes out in this. But to your point, I am going to have to do like a lightning round with this because there are so many different cases coming up. And I also do want to get to what's happening with the investigation with Hunter Biden. So there's so much, as you say, in the atmosphere that it is hard for like one particularly you know, ugly case to really sink in, I think, for the viewers, because it does all sort of start to blend together. That was true of his presidency, by the way. <laughs> yeah, that is true, that, the, the chaos theory. But you now know why his numbers are going up. Why? Because it looks like he's being persecuted. If you're on the Democratic side, it's because he did all these crimes. He behaved badly. If you're a Republican, you look at it and you say, it's all a conspiracy to bring him down. And every one of these investigations have caused Trump's numbers to improve. He's doing better now in the surveys than he has done at any time in 2023. He's dominating the field. He's got a lead that we've not seen in five, six years over his Republican opponents. And I believe that it's so much due to the prosecutorial efforts and their horrific communication that's actually allowing Trump to say that he's a victim. What do you mean horrific communication? What, because, do, you, okay. what do, you, do you want them to say differently? Because when they went to Mar-a-Lago and they went into his house, for five days, the Justice Department did not explain why that raid happened. So for five whole days, Trump was allowed to say, I'm being victimized. When he was Didn't indicted... did Garland come out within 24 hours and give a press conference explaining nothing. the details for the no, raid? No, he did I not explain it, did. and that's the whole problem. And it happened, and it happened, one more time, it happened when he was indicted. He was indicted on Thursday, Mm -hmm. and then he went on Tuesday to actually face the indictment. It was unsealed. Why can't they provide the context, the specifics? Because otherwise, Trump is getting away with everything. So, well, I mean, I, I think it's important to remember that these are actually legal proceedings. It doesn't just matter from a PR perspective how they go. I mean, especially the criminal proceedings. I have, I have different opinions on the different proceedings. I have not been thrilled with the way Alvin Bragg has handled this prosecution. In particular, you know, he he's not laid out the exact legal theory underlying what the under what the crime not is. Not about the Stormy Daniels. Yes. yes, and it's you know falsification of business yep, records, yep. but you have to have been doing that in order to hide some other crime. And he hasn't explained that, which he doesn't have to, but he also didn't have to give a press conference, which he did. And so if you're going to come out and give a press conference and explain why you're doing this, you might want to explain exactly what is the legal theory with this sort of Rube Goldberg charge that you have. However, what's going on in Georgia... That's, you know, I think there's a sense that this is sort of like, you know, really we're going to have the criminal prosecution of Trump over a hush money pavement. The stuff in Georgia is over really core acts related to the efforts to overturn the 2020 election. And people have heard that phone call. People have heard the phone call. They're aware of the behavior. And the behavior is seen as as serious behavior, not a a sort of sideline, you know, a way to get him him on the side. So I think, you know, the, yeah, he can can paint himself as a victim, although I would note he can do that without being indicted. I think maybe the best political positioning for him here was when he was being investigated, but not actually facing indictment. But, you know, if Republicans want to go ahead and nominate someone who's going to be facing a criminal trial in Georgia, you know, I, you know, as a Democrat, I say, you know, go right ahead. Or the prosecution of the special counsel. Look, I um, think that you are completely right in identifying that there is a uh, activist online base of the Republican Party that believes 
the more he is prosecuted, the more he is victimized, the more that is those people telling us who our candidate should be. And by golly, they're not going to pick our candidate. We're going to pick our candidate. And our guy is Trump. I mean, that's the sort of part of the psychology that happens. So the more he is prosecuted because of the, the, the system and the rule of law that we have in this country, the more he ascends with that certain group of Republican voters. And I think that is also inversely related or, or, or there's an inverse relationship to how he then is perceived by the general population and the regular voting public in a November yes, election. But the problem but is the, the other option is not prosecuting him for things that the you DA has to determine do it. Just saying, I'm just saying what's yeah. happening is the, the more the more popular you are with the base of the Republican Party that's going to be active in the primary. Yeah the less popular you will ultimately be with the general election public. And, I also and just, apparently with the criminal legal system, look at, it's, it's not for lack of explanation that Donald Trump is, is going up in, in, the, in, in the polls. Yeah. It, Alvin Bragg, actually, I think has done a, a good job or a sufficient job of explaining the charges. It's this that people disagree with the merits of the legal arguments. Okay. And, 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 you know, and that's fine. That's okay, a but I quickly debate. want to get into also what's happening with the status of Hunter Biden's investigations. So he's not been charged with anything, um, but his lawyers will meet with DOJ officials next week to get, it sounds like a status report. And his lawyers are apparently being more aggressive. Now, they're taking a more aggressive tact in that they are suing people who have made accusations against Hunter Biden. So in other words, they're not just sitting and waiting to see, like, will charges be filed, they're taking their, they're going on the offensive, basically. So do any of you think that this will be an Achilles heel for President Biden in this upcoming election? I think people see the Hunter Biden situation as sad, which it is. I, you know, I think that he is, you know, he's, he's clearly a man who has, you know, who has a lot of vices and who has behaved quite badly in a lot of ways. And I think people look at this and they look at it from the president's perspective, and I think that they feel a little bit sorry for the president. And I think that people, to some extent, admire the way that the president has stood by his very problematic son. So I think, you know, some of this stuff could be very serious trouble for Hunter Biden. He is under criminal investigation by the U.S. attorney in Delaware. Um, I would not be surprised if he ends up being criminally charged. But I don't think that people view this as a Biden family criminal enterprise. I think they they view this as the president's ne'er-do-well son up to something again. We just did research on this, and it was not mentioned once, not once, in an hour and a half's discussion with registered Democrats likely to vote in a primary. They're concerned about Joe Biden's age. They're not concerned about Hunter Biden, and you can't change that. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they disagree with Joe Biden. They think he's been a good president, and they want to thank him for replacing what they had before, and they're afraid of losing. But they are saying that Joe Biden, at his age, at his presentation, at his health, they are so scared that he could possibly lose to a Republican. Mm -hmm. And that's why Joe has to announce tomorrow or within the next few yeah. days that he's running because there are so many Democrats right now saying, should we be doing this? Oh, thank you. That's really good context. All right. We need to move on, guys. Uh, stick around because this is important. A sheriff's office in Kentucky has hired the officer who fired the fatal bullet that killed Breonna Taylor in that botched raid. Taylor's mother says this decision is, quote, insane. The officer's lawyer says he still has the right to be part of the police force. So we're going to discuss that next. The officer who fired the fatal shot in the 2020 botched raid that killed Breonna Taylor in her apartment has been hired by a sheriff's office in rural Kentucky. Breonna Taylor's mother says 
She actually tells CNN that she's angry, but not surprised. To think that another department would even want this guy to be a part of any department for that matter, to to know the things that he said um, about that night, how he couldn't even identify a person or what he was shooting at and to hire this person into another um, department just angers me. The panel is back along with CNN's chief law enforcement analyst, John Miller. So, John, explain this. He was terminated by the Louisville Metro Police Department and then hired 50 miles away by the Carroll County, Kentucky uh, Sheriff's Department. Um, is it worth hiring somebody with this high profile and problematic a past? Well, I think it's a real step by the sheriff um, because the sheriff has to know he's going to take heat for this hire. So what he may be trying to do is what he says publicly, which is he thinks an experienced narcotics officer will help him with his drug problem in the county, um, or he may be trying to save the career of a police officer who's got almost no prospect of getting hired somewhere else. And from what you know about the facts of the case, does he deserve a second chance? So there's two schools of thought on that. One is he was part of the raid that killed an innocent woman who had committed no crime and was, you know, uh, an emergency dispatcher studying to be an EMT and did not need to be shot by police. The other school of thought is um, he had a warrant that laid out a case that was signed by a judge with a no-knock warrant saying there's dangerous people there, it's a male drug dealer. What he didn't know, Miles Cosgrove, this police officer, is that much of what was in that warrant was false. This was a warrant that had been fabricated by two other detectives and a sergeant, the person who's supposed to catch fabrications, helped build these lies to get the warrant by a judge because they wanted to hit that apartment because they thought that someone in there was part of this narcotics conspiracy. Now, if you're the cop on the other side of that door and you have this warrant and you go banging through the door and there's a debate as to whether they said police or not, but the first thing you're met with, based on what you read in the warrant, is gunfire, your partner is shot and you shoot back, you're going to do a lot of head scratching later when you find out the real story is not what was in the warrant that they handed you to execute and how this, how this became of you. You can't get Breonna Taylor back. But we live in a country where 250,000 people, according to Johns Hopkins, are killed in medical malpractice incidents every year. It's the third leading cause of death. Nobody takes a doctor's license away very, very rarely and says... You can never practice medicine again because your irresponsibility killed somebody. Um, so the question is, does this police officer who went through this yeah. terrible experience and caused this terrible tragedy, based on information he was given that was wrong, does he get the benefit of a second chance because he didn't wake up that morning saying, I'm going to kill an innocent person? Yeah, look, I think in the analogy that, that you mentioned about the physician, the person operating on a patient, perhaps, you know, if it's just mere negligence, then no, you're probably not going to use your license. But, you know, let me know if you disagree. You're shooting into the dark and not knowing who you're shooting at, what you're shooting at. Uh, well, you know whoever it is is shooting at you. And if you've ever been in a gun battle where bullets are coming your way and then a far more irresponsible police officer who's posted in the alley starts shooting sideways through the apartment. Right. 
you're not able to tell in that instance at that moment where all these bullets are coming from. You know, my partner behind me is shot, the bullets are coming from here, and I hear more gunfire that I don't know where it's coming from. And you're gonna, uh, you're, you're gonna react by trying to defend yourself. There's two figures up there. Everything is wrong here, Mondaire. Yeah. Nothing, I mean, I nothing say, about this no, is right. Starting with a no-knock warrant, right? I mean, when, you know, when we have the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, uh, that would have banned no-knock warrants of the kind that ultimately contributed to the death of Brianna, the murder of Brianna. Yeah, and, and I've been on some no-knock warrants where the people didn't knock and where the people knocked and the people opened the door and shot them. Um, I was at one of those with the U.S. Marshals uh, the year before last in the Bronx. You know, this is a dangerous business. We keep having this conversation in isolation. Yeah. Brianna Taylor is a very bad story because an innocent woman died her boyfriend was wounded. But this is the same town and the same police department where we just watched on live body camera, practically, police officers walk into a field of fire where the circumstances were similar enough that someone was shooting at them, but they couldn't see where that person was, and they fired back till they took him down. One police officer was shot in the head and a bullet that traversed his brain, who's still in critical condition. The other was grazed and stayed in the fight until he took down the gunman who had already killed five people. And it's just the difference between circumstances that were bad on one day and bad on another day and worked out a bunch of days in between. Yeah. It's a and, volatile, and, dangerous yeah, business. Hold on, let me quickly yeah. get, get so, the, so the question is, does this, officer, does this officer deserve any understanding or, I, I, I mean, when you kill somebody, are you just out? Or I accountability. Just, I, I wonder if, if there isn't of course, we believe in second chances, especially if, if there are um, regrets and remorses expressed and you can and move on. But nobody moves on, obviously, from the death of a child, um, Brianna Taylor's death. But I wonder if, if, you're a, if you're a police officer that winds up, unfortunately, in that position, if your second chance just shouldn't be as the next deputy police officer in the town over, right? Well, it's an hour away. Right. But, you know, maybe maybe your second chance is in another line of work. Maybe your second chance is doing something slightly different or, or it just it, it, it does. You, you can understand how uh, it, it feels like one might not earn back that second chance. Or how hurtful it is to Brianna's mother. I mean, yeah, I, yeah. Or, or even to him, like there are, there are second chances abound. And there's a lot of things people can do in this in this world. And how does this help policing with the community when they when the community now that's going to be policed knows that someone on the force has been hired who was involved? Quickly, Josh. Well, I mean, th- this officer was fired. I mean, if you if you were going to have an argument over whether his conduct in the line of duty was such that it was suitable for him to remain a police officer or not, wasn't isn't the right question whether he should have remained with Louisville Metro PD? I mean, it, it seems that the the decision was reached in Louisville that his conduct was sufficiently bad that he needed to be removed from that police force. And and he was fired, and he sued to get his job back, and that did not prevail. But. What the state didn't do um, was take away his certification. I mean, the answer here is really going to be, for that sheriff, can he stand the heat of hiring this guy? And for that community where he'll be policing, will they accept him? Um, They're the ones who are going to decide whether he gets a second chance or not. Friends, thank you all very much for that. Be sure to tune in at the top of the hour. Some of our favorite reporters are going to be here to talk about the scoops that they're covering for tomorrow, including Matthew Chance. He's going to be here to explain what it's like to report from inside Russia. But first, how should we be tackling crime in Chicago? That's what Bill Maher is asking. 
We're going to discuss this next. Chicago. Like most of the, the shootings are young black men killing other young black men. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Much more than, than what the cops do. Why doesn't anybody talk about that? All right, who can help bring down crime in Chicago? Whose responsibility is it? On HBO's Real Time with Bill Maher on our sister network, Barr floated, Maher floated a provocative suggestion. Chicago. Like most of the, the shootings are young black men killing other young black men. Is that not correct? Yeah, that's correct. Okay. Much more than, than what the cops do. Why doesn't anybody talk about that? Well, I mean, uh, why aren't there, uh, you know, a uh, uh, hundred giant black celebrities who would have the respect of those people saying, what are you doing to yourselves? Why are you killing each other? This I mean, is I no just... way to live. This dishonors our community. Come on. Uh, we're better than this. Right. I feel like it's never addressed. Glenn Lowry. Mm-hmm. My panel is back. Um, John, give us a, a reality check on the status of crime and murders in Chicago before we start. So New York City has 8.4 million people. We have 400 murders. Chicago has 2.9 million people and has 700 murders. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask yourself, you know, why it is a city that is, you know, about a third the size of New York have 43% more homicides. Uh, theft is up. Auto theft is up um, exponentially. So one of the things, you know, that we're seeing in in Chicago is um, a lot of progressive criminal justice policies where you see repeat offenders because they're not going to jail in between crimes. And the gun crime, um, you know, the gun crime is the worst problem. I mean, theft and auto theft is one thing, but the amount of homicides and shootings that don't result in deaths is a real is a real it's something Chicago has not been able to get a handle on for the last decade. It's something, it's something the country hasn't been able to get a handle, handle on. I mean, here in New York City, we've got 70% or so of, of, illegally, of, of guns that have been illegally possessed actually come from out of state because of the lax gun laws that we have. I'd be curious to know how many of the guns that are illegally possessed in the city of Chicago come from outside the state of Illinois. Well, what do you the think guns, about The guns that yeah. illegally possessed in Chicago come from a couple of gun stores just outside the city limits of Chicago. Is that right? But, but what yeah. about... But There's you, also, build... you know what else is in Chicago? What? Defic- destitution. Mm. Poor, poor quality public schools. So as we talk about the reasons for the crime that we see in Chicago, which yeah. is a very serious problem... Yep. Let's not just describe it as the result of so-called progressive policies in the criminal Yeah, that's system. fair. But Bill Maher's trying to talk about solutions. I mean, what do you think about his Bill idea? Bill Maher's trying to be provocative, right? I mean, it's clear he doesn't talk to black people because black people do care about black-on-black crime. You know what else black people care about? Crime generally. White-on-white crime, white-on-black crime. The difference between um, when police brutalize... In many, in, se- in several instances, black people that get, gets the entire public upset about it is because your taxpayer dollars are going towards that, right? I mean, it shouldn't matter whether it's black on black crime or white on white crime or white on black crime. Crime is a problem regardless, and I don't quite understand his point of of trying to make it about a black on black crime. Because he's issue. saying, is that the most? Isn't that the the 
responsible for the largest percentage of crime. I'm saying it's crime generally that's the problem. So I don't, I don't know why it matters what the color of your skin is and why it's like a special responsibility of black people to talk to other black people about crime when we should be solving for crime writ large, regardless of the color of your skin. Josh? I mean, Chicago just had a mayoral election where the key issue in the race was crime. So it seems, from all the news coverage, I don't live in Chicago, obviously, but all the news coverage that I've seen of that race suggests that, that crime is very much top of mind for people in Chicago, whether they are white, black, or, or Hispanic. Uh, and so, I, you know, I think the idea that, that people are not paying attention to this or that black people are not paying attention to this, I, th- I, think, I think, is just incorrect. Um, I think Chicago does have a particular crime problem where, I mean, again, you know, there's destitution in Chicago. There's also destitution in New York. Um, New York manages to have a much lower crime rate than Chicago, and that has been true for quite some time. Sometimes you wouldn't know it listening to the mayor of the city. I, 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 yeah, New York has, New York is actually very safe as large cities go. It doesn't have that, that reputation. Um, and so, you know, I think you saw pretty two quite flawed choices in that mayor's race where you had Paul Vallis, who lost, who aligned himself with the police union and aligned himself with some political forces that are just clearly too far to the right to run a campaign in Chicago. And the idea, I mean, a, a big part of the problem in Chicago is you sort of have an undeclared strike by, by a large fraction of the police. I mean, you, there, was the, there were these essentially riots in downtown Chicago the other day. And, you know, it's, you know, here we go again. The city is, you know, the city is in chaos. But then you also have news reports about people saying, you know, I was right by Michigan Avenue and, you know, these people were assaulted and they were trying to flag down the Chicago police. And the Chicago police just drove right by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't, you know, it's not clear to me that anybody has a clear plan about what you're going to do to both get staffing levels back up to where they need to be with Chicago police and then actually get police there to perform the job that they're being employed for. I mean, there's clearly a lot of political disconnection between the police and the administration of the city. And it's probably, frankly, going to get worse with a more left wing mayor. Um, but it's, you know, the, you can't just, the, the police basically having a policy veto by being able to say, I'm not going to do my job if I don't like who the mayor is. Yeah. It's not a tenable situation, but I don't see a roadmap there about how we get back to a better situation. Margaret, before I let you, you go, let me just play one more thing of Bill Maher, who does talk here about um, some of the root causes as he sees it. It seems like, you know, a lot of times the solutions that come from the left seem symbolic. They don't seem like we're actually addressing what really needs to be done is get kids learning, get them reading, get them able to have a job. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I'm going to defer to the police officer on my left for exactly how you fix the crime problem in Chicago. I've you know, wondered about it for a long time. But the original question that you know, started the segment was, Bill Maher saying, why is nobody talking about it? And I, and I think, you know, it depends, I guess, who you're listening to. If you turn on Fox News on any given night, particularly when there's a headline about Fox News, they're talking about crime in Chicago. I mean, that's what's happening over there. But he's there. also saying black but, celebrities. But he's also, he's saying black celebrities, but you know who also is talking Who's not talking about it? It's like white liberals in Los Angeles aren't really talking about it either. So, I, I, you know, I think <laughs> to both of your points, all of us should be working on figuring out how to solve a crime problem in all of our cities. Um, and there are, you have all the solutions. So I'm just going to defer to you. Look, short-term solution, slam dunk, always works. If you're arresting people who are committing crimes and they are going to jail and prison, your crime is going to go down. We already proved that in New York City, and it's been replicated in other places. Long-term solution, because that's not a perfect solution, although... Once you lower your crime, you also lower the jail population, lower the prison population. Long-term solution is what Madhya is talking about, which is if you get to the root causes, but we keep whipsawing between a long-term solution where we're making short-term investments and a short-term solution that we go in and out of, 
and we can't understand why this isn't working. Thank you all very much for that great conversation. And a reminder, you can watch Real Time with Bill Maher on Friday nights on HBO at 10 p.m. And then you can watch Overtime right here on CNN Friday nights at 11.30. We'll be right back. Grammy-winning singer Lizzo there making her stance on Tennessee's anti-drag show law crystal clear by inviting drag performers on stage at her Knoxville concert. She told the audience that she was warned against performing in Tennessee, but she decided not to cancel her concert so she could create a safe space for drag performers. Last month, Tennessee Governor Bill Lee signed legislation banning, quote, adult cabaret artists from performing in public and or in the presence of children, The controversial bill listed male or female impersonators, which was interpreted to mean drag queens. All right, coming up, we have some of our favorite reporters here to talk about the stories they're working on for tomorrow. They're going to share their scoops with us next. Stick around. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this hour where we bring you tomorrow's news tonight. We have a great lineup of reporters here to share their scoops with us. So here tonight, Priscilla Alvarez, Rahel Solomon, Matthew Chance, and Bryn Jengress. Guys, great to have you here. Really uh, fun. Looking forward to this conversation. Okay, so the race for the White House is heating up. There's a big announcement expected tomorrow. Priscilla is following all this closely. What's going to happen tomorrow? (laughs) That is the question on everyone's mind. Look, we cannot overlook how sentimental tomorrow is to President Biden. He announced on April 25th of 2019 that he was going to run for president. And we are expecting that a similar announcement is going to be made tomorrow. But this time it'll be his reelection bid. And he, we expect that he's going to do so in a video, again, very similar to how he did this before. And so everyone's on pins and needles really waiting for this announcement to come. Is it a surprise? Not really. He has been saying that he plans and intends to run. What we're missing is the announcement. So advisors have been working on this around the clock. They were doing so over the weekend while the president was in Camp David. And so now we're nearing this date when this is supposed to come down. The key now, the difference now, of course, is that when he announces this, it's not just looking at his predecessor. It's also looking at his own agenda. And so we're anticipating how he starts to discern himself, not only from his predecessor, but what he's already done and how he plans to move forward. Have they given you any clues on what he's going to say? I travel quite a bit with President Biden, and I can give you a sense, a little bit of color, just based off those events. What he says is he's investing in America. He wants to finish the job. Some of these themes may sound very similar to the State of the Union. And every event, that is what crops up. So we can anticipate that some of those similar themes are probably going to come up in an announcement video. And do we know how Americans are feeling about this? Age. That comes up a lot. It also comes up among his advisors. And what we have seen from the polling is that there's tepid support 
There's concern among those who oppose Biden, according to an NBC News poll, nearly 50 percent where age is a major reason why they are concerned about another bid. Remember, he is the oldest American president in U.S. history. And so when you look at all of that together, it obviously raises some concerns for people in terms of how old he would be at the end of a second term. And that's what the NBC News poll really showed us. Advisors know this. His allies know this. But at the end of the day, they still see him as a steady hand. That's what Senator Amy Klobuchar said to our uh, Dan Abash at State of the Union, saying, you know, they don't, voters don't want the, what she said, chaos of the Trump administration. How, what they want is that steady hand. How about how voters feel about the economy? One thing that's just been fascinating for me to watch just during these last few years is that even when consumers we're still spending, even when unemployment is and was still really low. Americans felt terrible about the state of the economy. They felt terrible about President Biden's handling of the economy. And so it's just been really fascinating to watch how damaging inflation can be in terms of perception on the larger and economy. Is that coming down? Is that your sense that that, that not just inflation, the, the perception, is that improving at all? Well, I think that's that's the question, because inflation has certainly come down. Unemployment is still really low, but we're seeing layoffs start to mount. Uh, interest rates have been high for quite some time and they're likely going to go up again. And so I guess my question is, in terms of the economy, are his poll numbers improving because he hasn't really gotten a lot of credit. I think some within his party would argue he hasn't gotten credit for some of the good things that have happened in the economy. Well, and to your point, remember gas prices. That was a big moment for this administration as they were going up because people felt it in their pocket. Now, as that has come down, we hear from the White House, from White House officials, look at gas prices. They have come down. We are working on prices across the board. And when you visit, or sorry, not visit, but when you attend a Biden event, he always talks about we are going to lower these costs. He understands what it is like for Americans to have to pay extra. So they know that's a concern for voters. They are speaking to it. Now, of course, it's what people feel in their pocket. Mm. So should there be a change in the economy? Uh, Should those gas prices go up again? That's where the concern lies. Going back to the age, and you said you travel with him. Of course, we know that. But what is the sentiment around the press corps, you, others about age? Do, do you all feel like he is energized enough to carry out a campaign into this election? When you see him doing what he loves to do, which is talking to people, shaking hands. I mean, I have been at events that go over because he is simply saying hi to everyone at the end of his remarks. When you see him doing that, he's energized. It is what he does best. It's something that we've seen on the campaign trail time and time again. You know, when it comes to his remarks, I mean, that's where people are listening to what his agenda is moving forward, what his political priorities are. And so when advisors are looking at him and looking at who he may run up against, a.k.a. probably the former president, Donald Trump, um, of course, that's going to be a concern for everyone. Can he convey his message in the strongest possible way? Again, it always comes down to an awareness of age, an awareness of the way voters feel about age among his inner circle, but that he can still show that not only, again, as using Klobuchar's words, he's a steady hand, but that he also has the experience to continue to progress. Matthew, you're you're based normally in Moscow. Yes. And does this get play in Russia? Are people following the U.S. presidential race? Uh, they are, of course. They, they, they follow it very closely. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure the extent to which they're following it right, right now. There's yeah. lots of other stuff early. happening there. Yeah. But, I mean, the Russians, on Russian state television, which is carefully controlled by the Kremlin, it, it, it loves the idea of bashing the American political system. I mean, they, they often talk about, with relish, the age of, 
of, of President Biden and sort of lampoon it, really, and ri- ridicule it in quite, sometimes quite, frankly, a, quite a cruel way. Um, because it plays to this idea that America is inferior to Russia and that despite all, you know, what everyone says in the West, that Russia in the end has a superior political system and, and importantly, a superior leader in, in President Putin. But there's going to be a lot of excitement, I think, in the Kremlin where at the prospect of another Biden-Trump uh, presidential race, particularly at the prospect of Trump you know, becoming victorious in that because... Yeah, the, the, Trump, he, he, he reflects so much Kremlin talking points, whether it's about multilateral organisations like NATO or anything like that, or about solving the war in Ukraine. Um, and that's music to the ears of the Kremlin. They love that. Well, I'm glad the Kremlin's excited because <laughs> I don't know if America is excited, if most Americans feel excited to yeah. watch a repeat of this match again. I mean, it's hard for some people to and even conceptualize that we're, we're going back into this. Yeah, everybody in the news business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and there was also, of course, concerns, not concerns, I should say, but questions about when, when does he want to announce? We know that he plans to do it. And he kind of could run out the clock, right? There's not another Democratic opponent necessarily that's that we know of that's going to come up. So the question then was donors, fundraising. And up this week, we uh, expect to see donors and fundraisers uh, going to coming to Washington to visit with Biden. So part of this, too, is ramping up the fundraising because they know the race that is to come. They know it's going to be a grueling few months. So could he have waited longer? Yes. Could he still wait longer? Also, yes. But it also comes down to the funds and knowing what's ahead and getting the money behind it. All right, Priscilla, thank you very much for that preview of what is likely going to happen tomorrow. Uh, Next, a U.N. meeting on international peace hosted by Russia's foreign minister in the midst of Russia's war on Ukraine. Western diplomats slammed him to his face. So Matthew Chance has been covering all of this, and he's got that story for us next. Our Western diplomats slammed Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov today for hypocrisy after he hosted a U.N. meeting titled Maintenance of International Peace and Security, of course, in the midst of the Ukraine war. As during the Cold War, we have reached the dangerous, possibly even more dangerous threshold. The situation is worsened with the loss of trust in multilateralism. Let's call a spade a spade. Nobody allowed the Western minority to speak on behalf of all of humankind. Our hypocritical convener today, Russia, invaded its neighbor, Ukraine, and struck at the heart of the UN Charter. As we sit here, we brace ourselves for the next Bucha, the next Mariupol, the next Herson the next war crime. Well, Russia currently holds the rotating presidency of the U.N. Security Council. And Matthew Chance is our correspondent based in Moscow, but we're lucky to have him here tonight in New York with us. Matthew, it's great to have you here. So Lavrov hosting the international peace panel. That does strike Americans as absurd. How did the rest of the world react? Yeah, hypocritical and ironic, I think, is what the uh, U.S. ambassadors to the U.N. said. And, and it, it's easy, isn't it, to sit here and go, look, you know, Lavrov gave a speech about, you know, uh, American you know, grievances against the United States, you know, the, uh, the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He raised, you know, the various supports for revolutions around the world. And not even really mentioning Russia's war 
that it's waging against Ukraine. And so, you know, you, you can see it's so logical to, to sit here and say, look, this is hypocritical, it's ironic that Russia should be doing this. But the truth is, is that a lot of countries around the world, as I was mentioning to you earlier, a lot of countries around the world actually sympathise with that view. And, and Lavrov's audience, when he's addressing the Security Council there, is not the people of the United States. It's the people of the, you know, much of the rest of the world as he tries to gather support, garner support for Russia's position. There are a lot of countries like India, like South Africa, like China, uh, crucially, um, and you know, in the African continent as well, there are lots of countries, and in South America as well, um, that are genuinely you know, sympathetic to that view that Russia is actually just trying to stand up to the big American American superpower. And, and Lavrov knows that very well. He's, not, he's a smart guy. Mm. So, Matthew, while we have you, just tell us what it's like. I think our viewers would like to hear, too. What is it like to report from Moscow? Just peel back the curtain for us a little bit on the challenges. I mean... It's, it's, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's... But can you speak freely? Can you report freely? Are you constantly being... I mean, what's it like to... I know, we know you're being it's monitored. A, it's a really hard question because you used to be able to um, until about a year ago. Uh, you could say whatever you like. Basically, we were, we, we, were, we were given quite a lot of, you know... Well, we weren't really stopped from doing anything we wanted to do by the Russians. But what's happened in the past 12 months is the situation has changed dramatically. Russia has uh, enacted uh, a series of laws that essentially criminalise ordinary reporting, um, saying things like calling... You know, the war a war is punishable with a very long prison sentence. Um, um, you know, very general uh, laws, like if you um, criticise the military or criticise a senior figure in Russia, you can go to prison for 12 years. And, of course, as we've seen in, in, in the past several weeks, um, a US reporter for the Wall Street Journal, Evan Gershkovich, uh, has, um, has been arrested and charged with espionage uh, when, uh, according to everybody that we've spoken to and his newspaper and him, he's innocent of that and he was simply trying to dig up stories uh, about Russia in a way that many of us have done in the past. And so it is very, very hard, if not impossible right now, uh, to really get under the skin of Russia as a reporter. And yeah. how is that viewed in Russia? Because the U.S. is out front saying now that this Wall Street Journal reporter is wrongfully detained. There have been situations, Trevor Reed, Brittany Griner, where the administration has had to step in and secure their release, sometimes through prisoner swaps, which has been criticized domestically. But to what you were speaking to earlier, how is that viewed within Russia? I mean, look, I mean, it's difficult to sort of talk about Russia as a monolithic block. Mm. Remember, all of the independent journalists in Russia uh, that I know, and that even the ones I don't know, they've been silenced. They've either been put in jail or they've left the country or they've left the profession because it's, it's just too dangerous and risky to do it. So, you know, there's a lot of Russians, millions of Russians that are horrified about what's happening in, inside their country. And... Um, I'm fascinated about what's going to happen with Evan Gershkovich next. I mean, he is obviously a major bargaining chip for the Kremlin, um, just like Paul Whelan is as well, another U.S. citizen uh, who's uh, who's in uh, And in fact, prison. his sister was at the U.N. today. It, it, it has. He was. Um, because they she obviously was. want progress made. Do you want to just tell us what first what she yeah. said there? Well, I mean, look, I mean, she was there to basically speak in front of Sergei Lavrov to basically make a, a, an appeal for Paul Whelan, her brother, to be released from jail. He's in prison on spying charges. He was arrested back in 2018. But I think we've got... Take a quick listen to what she had to say. 
Russia's less than sophisticated take on diplomacy is to arbitrarily detain American citizens in order to extract concessions from the United States. This is not the work of a mature and responsible nation. It is the action of a terrorist state. I am here to tell Russia, free Paul Whelan. Was Lavrov listening? I mean, was he present for that? Uh, well, yes, I'm, I'm sure he's heard this, um, but it wouldn't be the first time he's heard an, an appeal like that. But it, it falls on deaf ears that the Russians are looking for it's obviously something major that they can get, they can extract from the United States before they're going to hand over somebody as valuable as an American citizen. Like what? Like Paul Whelan, like, like Evan Yoshevich. Like what? I mean, that's the big question. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the concern that I have. In the past, there were sort of quite significant... Russian nationals in 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 jail here in in, uh, in in the United States. I mean, Victor Boot, the notorious arms trafficker, was the, was the main one. He's now already been swapped out, and so the, there's there's not that many people that that spring to mind in American jails that that make an obvious exchange. I mean, there might be people around the world that perhaps still can be done with, but... Matthew, can I ask if we could segue just a bit? Sure. You know, one thing just in terms of the economic sanctions, the questions of have they been effective, have they not been? I mean, we know that major American corporations have left Russia, but in terms of just... I know reporting has become more difficult, as you've just said, but just in terms of day-to-day life, I mean, have you really felt the impact of sanctions? Do you feel like it's really uh, affected ordinary Russians, or what do you think? Well, I think, I think it started to, but I, I think the truth is that at the moment, the sanctions haven't had the sort of dramatic effect that perhaps people thought they were going to have at first. But these are, these are long-running, um, you know, kind of sanctions that will, will have a, a, an ongoing impact. But already I was in Russia just last week, or the week before last, and prices have gone through the roof I mean, there's no products. I mean, there are products in the shops, but no brands that you recognize. Mm. Uh, all the shops in the shopping malls have, have been boarded up or their names have changed to, to different things. And so it's, it, it, people in Moscow definitely are, are seeing visually a dramatic change as a result of the sanctions against them. And of course, that could get much worse. I mean, just a couple of days ago, the G7 suggested banning all imports, uh, all exports to Russia. Uh, everything with 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 some items like medicine perhaps getting an exception mm. but you know if that happens that that really will have a dramatic impact on the ability of russians to live lives that they're used to living you know yeah. people are used to buying products in supermarkets in russia yeah you know they won't be able to do that Brian, what are your thoughts i mean listen he comes in my office and i just sit and listen i just and i'm just so amazed by you because your coverage of Ukraine has just been, I mean, next to none. And so I'm just so curious how you go back to Russia. I mean, I know we kind of talked about how the difficulties you face, but just mentally, I just don't know how you do it. And I think last time we saw you, you said <clears throat> that, you know, you were staying away for a little bit. And then I saw you up on the TV and I was like, what are you doing? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, it's a difficult one. It is a difficult one. It's difficult. Uh, I mean, because obviously I don't want to end up in, I mean, none of us want to end right? up behind bars. I mean, it's, it is a genuine, it is a genuine risk. Yeah. Um, and so when I first went back after covering the Ukraine war last year, uh, I was a little bit anxious when I went through customs. I thought they were going to, uh, they looked at my phone. They, I had to show them all the photos. They were like, who's this? Why have you got a photo with President Zelensky? And, I, and my policy is to just be totally upfront with them. I mean, they've known me. I've lived there for a long time. I mean, close to 20 years I've been going in and out of Russia. Um, and they know I'm the CNN correspondent. They know I covered Ukraine. And so my strategy with them is to, is to be like, look, this is what I am. This is what I do. You can see what I do on television. If you don't want me in the country, then you know, 
turn me away, but otherwise, you know, let me go through. Thanks. <laughs> I mean, it's worked so far, but I mean, you know. I understand. I hear yeah. you. I mean, I think that everybody can understand how dicey it has become because of what you've just told us. That's nerve wracking. That, I mean, I really appreciate you being so candid and telling us about that because I wasn't quite aware of how nerve-wracking it is each time you go in and out there. Well, it's, it's just that, you know, you can, you can take measures in Russia to sort of not do anything too controversial if that's the way you want to play it. But the problem is, if the Kremlin decides that they want a bargaining chip, you could get a knock on the door at any moment. And that's the problem. You can't, and you can't mitigate against that risk. You just have to sort of, like, hope <laughs> that it doesn't happen. She's wow. not great. No, it's not. Um, Matthew, uh, our hat's off to you. We really appreciate oh. it. And, and we're really glad that you're here tonight with us. Well, it's great to be here. Um, stay here. Uh, okay. Meanwhile, there's a big lawsuit over a very popular Ed Sheeran song that you know. Take me into your loving arms. Kiss me under the light of a thousand stars. Okay, does that sound familiar to you? Did, did Matthew Chess just say, what is this song? so familiar. Did you just say, this song? Oh, okay. Oh, I thought you said, what is this song? <laughs> okay, a writer of another very famous song thinks it rings a bell. Bryn's going to walk us and Matthew through what's happening in this case. That's Who's next. this guy? <laughs> and the crowds don't remember my name. Okay, a jury's been selected in the copyright infringement case against Ed Sheeran. He's accused of copying the 1973 Marvin Gaye hit, Let's Get It On. The heirs of Ed Townsend, who co-wrote that song with Marvin Gaye, allege similarities between Let's Get It On and Sheeran's Grammy Award-winning song, Thinking Out Loud. So here are a few seconds of the Sheeran song first. Darling, I will be loving you Okay, and here is the Marvin Gaye song. Okay, Bryn has been covering this all day. So, Bryn, you really hear you hear a direct similarity there? No. You don't, because I don't either. Do you? Okay, I don't. I was going to ask okay, everybody. Yeah. I don't. Do you? Jenna and I were talking about this earlier today. Yeah. We could not hear the difference, and I you can't sympathize hear the difference, with... or you hear you hear the similarity, or you don't hear the similarity. I, I, I don't. hear the similarity. Okay. I don't hear the difference, and I really sympathize for this jury exactly. who is going to listen to this on over repeat. and over. Yes. Okay. <laughs> what do you I think? I did not hear the similarity the first two or three times, but me being the dogged reporter that I am, yes. I've been listening to it for the last yeah. few hours, and I actually do start to hear the similarity the now. More you I to it, the more I hear the similarities. Okay, because there are so many songs that sample other songs, and yeah. immediately you hear that, like the echo yes. of the other song. And I've heard the Ed Sheeran song a thousand times, like we all have, and I've never thought, oh, that's a ripoff of Marvin Gaye. Right. But here's the thing, too, guys, is the jurors are not going to be hearing the words. This is just talking oh. about the rhythm and the notes. Matthew, what do you think? So that's kind of a big deal if you think that about it. That is different. It can't be the only two songs that sound like, you know, let's get it on. I mean, that's such a classic, sort of fundamental... Yeah. You know, pop song. It is. I've heard. I, I'm. 
I've heard loads of songs that sound a bit like that. And that's yeah, their that's point, Ed's right? Point. Their point is and that that's Ed Sheeran's point. Chord. This is the common, yeah, chord, pro- chord progression. And these are the building blocks of a right. song. There's only so many you could actually choose from when you are building a song. Right. So why am I being taken to court for this? But let's go first into the nitty gritty of what's happening tomorrow. Opening statements are going to happen in this infringement case. And it's kind of funny because the jury selection, not funny, but the jury selection was today. Seven jurors are now in the panel some of them had to be dismissed because one woman's teenage daughters are big Ed Sheeran fans. Another woman had to be dismissed because it was her wedding song, was an Ed Sheeran song. So it's just a little interesting that entertainment. Is, that is process. They need people who haven't really, who, don't know either. So maybe we need Matthew Chance yeah. on the jury. <laughs> he needs but to you, report to federal courthouse tomorrow morning. He was kidding. He do know, you do know these songs. I mean, I, obviously I, you know the Marvin Gaye song, but you also know the Ed Sheeran song, yes? I mean, music isn't my... Isn't my thing. <laughs> okay. But, but yeah, I mean, I, I've heard them both. I've definitely heard okay, them well, both. Okay, l- well, let's do this. Let's play more of okay. first the a longer cut of, should we do the Ed Sheeran song? Ed Sheeran. Okay, so for, here's a longer cut. But again, remember, you sure try, this to, is the try to take out the words. Okay, the music, music. Okay, here we go. Baby, my heart could still fall out. Okay. Um, no, I need you to actually take the words out for me. Yeah, I, ca- I, I get so too, too I consumed get, I with the words. I'm too <laughs> And the music video, I'm just like, what? the music video, <laughs> yeah, that's too, Just that's like too, absorbs you. Yeah, yeah I wish just, we like, just had ready it with to, the music. Like, walk down the aisle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Do we know if intent matters? Like, does it matter if Ed Sheeran perhaps used a song with those similarities but didn't intend to... And was inspired does, by it. Yeah. It's a good question. He's going to take the stand. So, I mean, I think that's probably going to come up in the questioning. Um, and it's, you know, it's unclear. There is one thing we should point out here is the song was released in 2014. And Ed Sheeran went on tour and was actually playing his song and actually sang the lyrics. Let's get it on. Oh, okay. Let's listen to that. Let's listen to that. Okay. Oh, now let's hear that. That is the smoking gun yeah, right there. Okay, well, here's the tr- here's the thing, though. The judge said that that cannot actually be part of the trial, but he did reserve to say it could be based on how the trial's going. So it's right now, that is not part of what jurors will not see that. But why not? It's a little unclear that was his ruling. It's a 95-year-old judge. I don't know what <laughs> his exact ruling is. If that had to do with it, I don't know. But he, that will not be part of it just yet. But it is a little dicey to, to hear Ed Sheeran himself that year when the song came out to but be what, actually singing Marvin Gaye. What's at stake here? Because we still hear yeah. thinking out loud, but Ed Sheeran has to pay a fine, assuming that they find... And here's the thing. Ed Sheeran has been sued 
many times, actually a couple times. And he has actually had to add the name of songwriters to uh, one of his songs as a settlement. In another case, he actually won in 2022 when someone sued him for copyright infringement. So this is a a case that the music industry and artists are really going to be watching closely because it it will determine, you know, what will move forward. Now, this isn't also the first time that Marvin Gaye and, well, really it was Marvin Gaye's family who sued with Robin Thicke and Blurred Lines. And that I could hear. That one, the Blurred Lines one, I could hear the similar. Right. And yeah. that w- they won that. So, I mean, there are cases where the plaintiffs have won and there are cases where the artist has won. So we're going to have to see this about a one week long trial. We're, t- we're talking about millions, millions, millions. Of dollars, yeah. And, like, and listen, this family is suing for legal fees if, if they don't, yeah. you know, as he could be paying millions the, just to this yeah. family just for if, if they win. I think the Robin Thicke for all case, I mean, I think they ended up having to pay about like five, five million. million. So, yeah, yeah. So definitely a lot all of right, money. We'll come back and tell us what's happening with this, <laughs> okay. because obviously we all need to know at this point, including Matthew. Yes. All right. Now, what's going on at Disney? The company is now going through its largest wave of cuts as part of a major slash of its workforce. And Rahel is going to explain why. That's next. Major news coming from two iconic companies. Disney begins its largest wave of layoffs this week as part of the company's plan to slash its workforce by 7,000 employees. And Bed Bath & Beyond filed for bankruptcy over the weekend. The company plans to liquidate all inventory. Rahel is following both of these stories. So, Rahel, let's start with um, Disney. Why are they laying off so many So a few things are happening with Disney, right? It's a media company, and many media companies have been scaling back in this larger macro environment where advertising spend has really pulled back. Companies are pulling back, preparing for a recession, even if we aren't already in a recession, right? So you're starting to see less advertising spend, so Disney has become a victim of that. Disney, however, also has had kind of a rocky few months. Remember a few years ago, Bob Iger, the CEO, wildly successful CEO, stepped down, retired, Bob Chapek then stepped up, became CEO. He was then fired very quickly. Then Bob Iger came back. So part of this is also Bob Iger's plan to uh, transform the company, try to right the ship. So he said that he is trying to save $5.5 billion in costs. So this is part of that. So this latest round of layoffs, it's the largest so far. It brings total layoffs to about 4,000. But we know this is not the end. We expect another round of layoffs, which would ultimately bring us to about 7,000. I should say it should impact ESPN. It will not, however, and some of its other entertainment divisions, it will not, however, affect its frontline employees at the theme parks, et cetera. And at the theme parks, hadn't they already announced significant increases in entrance fees? Yeah, they had. So they had been raising prices. And so for some of its theme parks, that equated to an increase of about 12%. And I should say in its last earnings call, the theme parks division was the highlight of the report. I mean, they are doing very well in live entertainment at the theme parks division. So that is actually an area of strength for the company. And yes, they have raised prices. The company has said in its earnings reports that not only are people uh, continuing to go to the theme parks, but they are spending more time while they're there and they are spending more money while they're there. And that is benefiting Disney in a really big way. So, Brent, I mean, do you, hey. so those are that's those what we just saw, 124 to 189 yeah. for Disney World. That's to get in for one ticket a day. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it looks like. Yeah, I just feel like it's the most magical place on earth and you can't afford to go there. Like, I feel like it's so exclusive to certain people and it's disappointing. And so you can have the magic. It's just going to cost you a lot of money. (laughs) It's very expensive. (laughs) Expensive and not that exclusive. But yeah, that's amazing. Okay, and so, um, Priscilla, let's talk about what um, Rahel was alluding to with Bob Iger. So as we know, Governor DeSantis of Florida has been in this feud with Disney and at times Bob Iger 
Why? I mean, isn't Disney, aren't Disney and Florida sort of synonymous with each other? And is this helping Governor DeSantis? Well, a major employer, right? Uh, And as we were talking about during the break, Disney just can't get out of the headlines because not only of their own situation internally, but because of Governor DeSantis. Look, he continues to go after Disney, going after what he calls their sort of woke culture uh, and their decisions that they have made and the pushback that they have had against DeSantis and his own measures in the state legislature. The, he has his allies, and his allies rally on this issue. But when you look at the Republicans in a, in a broader way, they are not so pleased with this. I mean, this is not necessarily where the Republican Party veers, right, by getting involved in private business, in, in big corporations, especially ones that are massive employers, in um, despite the layoffs in the state of Florida. So, you know, we are seeing pushback from Republicans. We, Donald Trump has gone after him for this. Chris Christie has mentioned it. So is it an issue that he's going to cling on to moving forward, assuming that he does announce his candidacy for 2024? We'll see. But for now, really sort of mixed reactions. And just to add to what Priscilla said, not just a major employer, but a major source of tourism revenue dollars for Central Florida and for the state of Florida. I wish I had my reporting with me, but the numbers are astounding how much money Disney brings to the state of Florida because of tourism. Yeah, that's why this feud has has confused me in the past. But as you say, unless it's really working for him politically. Um, Okay, so now Bed Bath & Beyond. So they just declared bankruptcy. What do we need to know? Okay, so this has been a long time coming. For people within the industry, This we've been watching this unfold for quite some years. Uh, the company announcing Sunday that it is going to begin liquidating process, begin the liquidating process. So what could this look like? Well, I mean, technically, it could still find a buyer, although analysts I, sp- I speak to today said that's unlikely. It per- perhaps could turn into an e-commerce play. But anyone who buys it at this point is going to be looking for a pretty steep discount because otherwise they would have already stepped up by this point. So what it means is that for people who work at Bed Bath & Beyond, especially the physical stores, they might see a pink slip. They might see a layoff. If you are a consumer, if you shop at Bed Bath & Beyond, you have a gift card, you have a return, you want to do that sooner rather than later. But Bed Bath & Beyond has really suffered from really a slew of things. It was very slow to the e-commerce trend. I mean, very slow, painfully slow. So that hurt. Uh, It also buckled under the weight of competition from the likes of the Targets of the world, the Walmarts of the world. Uh, And of course, it had its coupon program, which depending on who you ask, was either a success or really hurt it. But which one was it? Because, I mean, we get these coupons every day in the mail. So were they a hit or no? (laughs) So it's a bit complicated. So it was a hit for a really long time, except it hurt its profit margins and people got used to it, right? I mean, if you suddenly, when the company started to pull back its coupon program, suddenly people didn't want to go to Bed Bath & Beyond anymore because they're like, where's my coupon? Like, (laughs) you've been sort of conditioned to shop with the coupon. So when they tried to pull that program back, it really had disastrous impacts. That's really interesting. I know. <laughs> Matthew, I've, I've have left you Matthew ever been just out of Bed Bath and Beyond. Speechless. Uh, I haven't. No, but I am. I am very concerned, though. I mean, on a serious note, I'm. I'm, I'm concerned about the thousands of people yeah. that are being made unemployed. I mean, all the people at Disney, what seven to nine thousand. I mean, how many yeah. people at Bed Bath and Beyond? I don't know. But is this is this part of a a sort of broader 
spike in unemployment that we're seeing in the middle of this recession? You know, that's a great question. What we have actually seen is a spike in unemployment in more white-collar professions. We've seen it in tech. We've seen it in some of the financial services. We've seen it in some of the media businesses. We have not, however, seen it at the lower end of the income spectrum. Frontline workers, we haven't seen it because... what. Where there, still, there still was a lot of demand for those type of workers. And there's still, according to the latest government data, still is a lot of demand for those type of workers. But I think you make a very fascinating and valid point that as these layoffs start to mount, where the, will there still be as much demand for those people? And those are the people who you could argue when you look at the data, their savings have already been depleted. They're already not necessarily making a lot of money. And they're buckling under the weight of higher inflation, higher borrowing costs. So they are already among the most vulnerable. And we're starting to see layoffs mount in those areas. So that's a really good point because we haven't really seen that play out just yet. But that could be changing. Thank you all for that information. Okay, up next on The Lookout, our reporters tell us what stories they're seeing on the horizon. We'll be right back. And we are back with our fabulous panel of reporters to tell us what stories they are keeping an eye on. We call it On The Lookout. Okay, Priscilla, tell us what's coming up. Well, this week, we're expecting to hear from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas on their border preparations. The reason why is because in, a, in the coming days, on May 11th, a COVID-era border restriction known as Title 42 is going to expire. That has allowed authorities to turn away certain migrants at the U.S. southern border. And in a moment of unprecedented mass migration in the Western Hemisphere, there is concerns about what it looks like when we go back to our traditional protocols. And inevitably, that may mean a surge of migrants at the border. So I have been talking to sources over the last few days, even today, many sources who already spoke to White House officials uh, and DHS officials who are getting out in front of it. I'm noticing a shift in strategy as they try to tell members of Congress and their staff what those preparations look like because they have already faced criticism before when they didn't share enough and everybody was surprised by the numbers and the policies. So that's what I'm keeping an eye out. What do those preparations look like? What are they going to say this week when they're only days away from a really critical moment and on an issue that is a political vulnerability for President Biden? So glad you're alerting us to that. That's a really important story. Okay, Matthew, what are you keeping an eye on? Uh, Over the next 24 hours or so, I am keeping an eye on this Russian delegation that's in New York at the United Nations, led by Sergei Lavrov, which we discussed earlier. And and what I'm I'm looking for is any contact between them directly and American officials to discuss the whole gamut of problems that are between those two countries, and particularly the Evan Gershkovich case. I mean, he's now obviously the subject of a negotiation um, and, and I want to see if that's taking place. And so we're going to be looking at that very closely. Uh, more broadly, um, you know, the military situation in Ukraine, I, mean, we, I know we've sort, sort of like, it's all faded into the background a little bit, but there's about to be a massive military push in Ukraine with the Ukrainians, with all the American weapons and the Western weapons they've been given, trying to take back as much territory from Russia as they possibly can. So in the weeks ahead, that's kind of what I've got my eye on. Okay, thank you. Really important. That's really good to know, Rahel. So it's earnings season. So it's the time of the quarter where all public companies announced how they've done the previous quarter. They tell investors what they expect to be doing the previous quarter. And tomorrow we have a fun company reporting earnings, Spotify. So they have spent a lot of money in its podcast unit for big names like Kim Kardashian, the Obamas, Harry and Meghan. And so they've been under some pressure to cut back a bit and sort of manage expenses and work on its profit margins. So I think it'll just be a fun one to watch, a fun one to see how they're doing and also uh, what's ahead. Dial down the $50 million deals. 
her pop. A little bit. Yeah. Little bit, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, and so, Bryn, you're keeping an eye on something that you alleged us to yeah, last, last week, week, which is a really fascinating case. Yeah. So we talked about that death penalty case in Oklahoma. Richard Glossop, he's been uh, on death row for 24 years. His clemency hearing is coming up on Wednesday. He's pretty much run out of legal options to save his life. The attorney general in Oklahoma is going to recommend to the parole board clemency. But the big thing here is Kim Kardashian tweeted about it today. So this case is on her radar. And of course, we know how many followers she has. So I'll be interested to see how that sort of affects all these um, decisions. She's asking her followers to call the parole board, to call, call the governor and save this man's life. So execution days in three weeks. So it's uh, time is ticking. That will be fascinating if that changes the equation. Right? I mean, it has execution. before. She's, that, she's been yeah. effective in that, that role. That's right. That will be fascinating. All right. Thank you all so much. Really appreciate you guys being here. It was a great conversation. So tune in tomorrow on CNN This Morning. Breonna Taylor's mother will be on the show to react to news that the officer who fired the shot that killed Breonna Taylor has just gotten another policing job. Thanks so much for watching us tonight. Our coverage continues now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.